Welcome to the Weekend University podcast, and this is your host, Niall McKeever. The Weekend University was set up to make the best psychology lectures available to the general public. To do this, we organize lecture days once per month, where attendees get a full day of talks from the UK's leading psychologists, authors, and university professors. Our podcast features in-depth interviews with our speakers, so you can learn more about their work. To keep updated on upcoming events and new lectures, you can sign up for the mailing list at theweekenduniversity.com. In this episode, we're joined by Dr. Steve Taylor. Steve is a senior lecturer in psychology at Leeds Beckett University and the author of several best-selling books on psychology and spirituality, including Making Time, The Leap, and Spiritual Science, which was published earlier this year. Eckhart Tolle has described his work as an important contribution to the shift in consciousness that is happening on our planet, and he has twice been named in Mind, Body, Spirit magazine's list of the 100 spiritually most influential living people. In this episode, we discuss the psychology of near-death experiences, Steve's advice for uncovering your purpose, why Dr. Taylor has never worked more than three days per week in his life, Steve's views on consciousness and spiritual experiences, and a whole lot more. Dr. Taylor will be the second speaker at our upcoming Science and Spirituality event, which is taking place at the University of London on Sunday the 28th of October. You can save 10% on your ticket if you use the code PODCAST when registering. Enjoy the show. All right, so Steve, um, welcome to the show. Thanks, uh, Thanks for having me. To get started, could you just tell me a bit more about your background and how you got so interested in, in spirituality and, and the books you're currently writing? It was down originally down to my personal experiences. Um, at the age of 16 or 17, I started to have, uh, I started to experience unusual states of consciousness, which I didn't understand at the time. Uh, so they were m- moments when I felt um, a strong sense of connection to nature. I felt a sort of strong desire to be in natural uh, surroundings, to be in quietness and uh, peaceful surroundings. And when I was in those surroundings, I, I feel a, a tremendous sense of connection to, to the sky or to the trees around me. And a, a kind of a feeling of uh, harmony and kind of euphoria almost. And that happened a lot, but I didn't really understand the experiences at the time. I, my background was kind of um, very non-religious, non-spiritual, and I didn't really have a, a context to make sense of those experiences. Uh, so at the time, I thought there was, there was something wrong with me because I was sort of, I felt different to other people and I was experiencing these strange states of consciousness. But la- later on, I realized that, you know, these, uh, these experiences were not uncommon, that a lot of people also had them. And then I realized when I read books on spirituality and mysticism, maybe when I was in my early 20s, I realized that, you know, there were actual uh, whole philosophies built around these experiences and uh, that people in different cultures in, and in different centuries had had the same experiences. So eventually when I decided to become a psychologist, um, then w- one of the things I wanted to do was to um, do research on these experiences. I called them awakening experiences. Well, you mean all the people call them spiritual experiences, but I called them awakening experiences because um, I realized from my own experiences and from other people's experiences that they, they tended to happen in kind of non, religious, non-spiritual context, just in the midst of everyday life, in normal 
activities um, and usually to people who knew nothing about spirituality or religion. So I, I saw them as a kind of natural feature of human experience, which, you know, some people interpret in terms of spirituality or religion. But in any case, that was the, the main reason why I became a psychologist to study these types of ecstatic experience. Very interesting. And I, I heard in another interview you did, did online that whenever you're around the age of 20, you, you were went through a period where you were quite difficult on yourself and you were doing things like you were taking cold baths, you were sleeping on a hard floor and stuff. Could you talk, tell me a bit more about that period and why you think you went through, through that stage? Yeah, again, at the time, I didn't really understand what I was doing. You know, basically, I was at university. Um, I was at the University of Warwick. I was about 20 years old, probably my second or third year, my third year, I think. And I just felt this impulse to kind of um, pare my life down to its most basic stakes. I wanted to kind of get rid of everything in my life, apart from the most basic things. Uh, so I, I, I cut myself off from other people. I lived in a bedsit and had very little contact with other people. I got rid of most of my possessions. I, you know, everything I owned, I could put in one, in one sort of large bag. And I felt this urge to sort of um, test myself or sort of almost inflict challenges and difficulties on myself. And I didn't know why, again, it was, it was totally instinctive. Um, but I guess when I think about it now, it was partly a, a desire to kind of uh, become free of the, the environment I've been brought up in. I was trying to sort of, you know, uh, find out who it really was. And that meant sort of taking everything away to find out what was left at the end of that process. And it was, I think I was also trying to develop some willpower too. It was a question of sort of trying to um, become self-disciplined as well. Um, yeah, I think it basically was a desire to sort of reduce life to its most essential form so that I could begin again and kind of rebuild from that point. It sounds like you were practicing stoicism without even knowing what you were doing. And do you think on a spiritual path, that's important for people, that's an important stage for people to go through? Is that something almost like something that has to be done? I don't know if it's an important stage for everybody, but um, certainly for some people, it's an important stage. I mean, it happens well later on, years later when I read about mystics, and spiritual traditions. I read about asceticism, uh, which was a very, you know, in, in every spiritual tradition, particularly in Hinduism and in Christian, Christian mysticism, asceticism, asceticism is seen as a kind of essential stage of spiritual development. And again, it's very similar to what I was doing. It's a question of sort of, uh, well, in its extreme form, it means inflicting pain on yourself. You know, like the, uh, the Christian saints who would wear hair shirts and belts with nails that stuck into their skin. It becomes quite perverse, you know, in its extreme form. But um, in, in Hinduism, for example, in the Hindu tradition, it's a question of um, developing, some, some, to some degree, it's a question of developing self-discipline. But it's also a question of awakening energies in the body by sort of reducing your dependence on your senses and your, by becoming more uh, kind of detached from sensory pleasures and comforts, you build up an inner, an inner energy, a kind of inner spiritual energy. And I guess from my own experience, I, you know, I can understand that. I think maybe subconsciously I was trying to do that, build up this inner spiritual energy. 
but it, it depends on the tradition. Some traditions don't recommend that, and some people don't seem to need that. And the other, the, 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 way, the other way of looking at it is that um, one thing I've looked at a lot in my research is how suffering and psychological turmoil can give rise to personal transformation. You know, there, are, there are a lot of cases of people who've been diagnosed with cancer, who've been addicts, uh, who've suffered bereavement. And in the midst of that intense psychological suffering, they sometimes undergo a, a transformation. Uh, so I sometimes think if, you know, in some people's experiences and in some traditions that that period of inflicting suffering on yourself, maybe they're trying to do something similar. They're trying to sort of uh, create or generate some kind of inner transformation by inflicting suffering on themselves. Very interesting. Um, I know that you spent some time in East Germany when in your 20s as a, as a musician. Could you tell us a bit more about with that period and that, the significance of that in your overall kind of life's direction? Yeah, you know, it was quite an austere time uh, at that period in East Germany. You know, just they were just recovering from 45 years of communism. And I was living a kind of quite an austere life too. You know, I was, I was, I was living a very kind of hand-to-mouth existence. I didn't have a bank account and I had no sort of official um, identity, no driving license and nothing. I was just living a a hand-to-mouth existence as a musician, uh, earning very little money, but it, it cost very little money to live at that time in Eastern Germany. But also, as a musician, I was living quite a hedonistic lifestyle too, doing a lot of drinking and smoking, a lot of late nights, and a lot of hanging around. And um, But there was, there was one particular evening, one night, when I, and I used to go to bars. I was at a bar until about four o'clock in the morning, and I went to bed about five o'clock in the morning, and. I woke up maybe an hour after I'd gone to bed, maybe at six o'clock in the morning, it was still dark. And I had this incredible feeling of uh, freedom and euphoria. Um, and I felt in some ways I was outside my body, but at the same time I wasn't, I was kind of both inside and outside my body. And I felt kind of limitless as if my, uh, my identity or my being was stretching kind of limitlessly through space. And I was almost aware of the whole universe. Somehow I could sense the, the enormity of the whole universe kind of stretching around me. And there was just this incredibly deep feeling of peace, uh, as if I was kind of um, floating on this kind of ocean of bliss. And I had this strong sense, strong awareness too, that this was the the kind of basic essential reality of the universe. It was a really strong and strong awareness that this this sort of incredibly strong feeling of euphoria was in, in some way the essence of things. There was a kind of harmony. The whole universe seemed to be, you know, um, immersed in harmony. And it was so powerful. It was, you know, probably still to this day the most powerful spiritual experience I've had. And because at that time, as I said, I was living a kind of quite a dissolute life and sort of... Um, I'd moved away from my earlier kind of uh, ascetic or kind of spiritual lifestyle. So in, in, a, in some way, it was a kind of, it was a remind, powerful reminder of um, what I thought I'd lost, but it was obviously still there inside me and outside me. And in some ways after that, I, you know, it changed my life and I began to move back towards a, a spiritual lifestyle. Very cool. 
Um, so a lot of your work over your life has focused on, I suppose, awakening experiences. And you've read a book on the psychology of spiritual awakening. But even the, the use of the term awakening suggests that the normal state for human beings to be in is a kind of autopilot, a kind of, a kind of sleep. Um, do you think this is the case? And, and if so, what do you think causes this? And it, has, it, has it always been like this? Have we always been in this sort of like semi-asleep state? And yeah, could you just t talk a bit more about that? I think that's true. I, I, I feel strongly that um, human beings' most normal state is to be asleep, to be so, well, asleep is maybe a bit strong, but partially awake, you know, half asleep maybe. And I think there, there are two main ways in which that manifests itself. One is um, in what I sometimes call automatized perception. You know, we human beings, most human beings tend to take life for granted. We take the world for granted. Um, our surroundings are familiar to us. The basic experiences of our lives are familiar to us. And our lives consist of a lot of repetition and repeating the same experiences, with the same people in the same environments. So we live, we live under this kind of veil of familiarity. You know, the world is half real to us because it's so familiar. And we, we, I think that's, that's one of the reasons why we love to go on holiday, because when we go on holiday, the surroundings are unfamiliar and we, we, we wake up a little bit, the world becomes more real. It's like, ah, this is fresh, it's exciting because it's more real. And it's also why we love new experiences, you know, because new experiences also wake us up a little bit. It's like, ah, these are real and, you know, we're back to reality for a short time. But unfortunately, we always return to familiarity. And that extends to very basic perceptions, like looking at the sky or looking at the trees around us. We don't really see them in their isness. We see a kind of half real, kind of shady reality, which is like a sort of a very poor quality photocopy of reality itself. Yeah. And that becomes normal as so this kind of automatized perception becomes normal. And it means that we take life itself for granted, the fact of being alive in the world, you know, this strange, wonderful place with these strange and wonderful people around us and all the kind of weird phenomena about, you know, that, that human life consists of, we take all of it for granted. Is there anything people can do to kind of like snap themselves out of it and stop taking everyday life for granted so much, you know, like to start appreciating the small things, appreciating nature, appreciating the people in our lives? Yeah, definitely. Um, but I think that's the whole aim of mindfulness is to, to actually to actually um, cultivate a fresh awareness of our experience, to actually be aware of what we're doing rather than being uh, sort of perceiving the world through a haze of abstraction and familiarity. So, you know, things like meditation, mindfulness, I think, you know, that is the essential aim of these practices is to wake us up to the reality of the world, the reality of our experience. But there are lots of other things too. Um, I think you mentioned nature, contact with nature can have this effect too. It's a really, I mean, nature has a kind of stilling effect. It calms our minds down, relaxes us, and it kind of intensifies our perceptions. So we become, you know, more aware of our experience. And that's, that, again, that's the reason why we, one of the reasons why we love to go into nature, because it wakes us up. And um, apart from that, um, you know, you, we, there's a lot of research in psychology that talks about the benefits of cultivating um, an awareness of uh, cultivating a sense of gratitude. You know, there, are, there are various exercises you can practice to kind of stop, like, stop taking life for granted, 
And one of them is cultivating an awareness of death. You know, I think one of the reasons why we take life for granted is because we aren't aware of death. You know, death is a kind of, um, it, you know, we, we know we're going to die, but subconsciously we don't really think we're going to die. We think we're going to be here forever. So often a reminder of death is like, a, wow, no, I am going to die. And therefore this world is temporary. It's, uh, you know, it's, my life is fragile and temporary and therefore it's precious. And the people in my life are also precious because they're, you know, they're temporary as well. Our relationships are all temporary. So, you know, cultivating an awareness of death is a really good way of, um, you know, overcoming, I call it the taking for granted syndrome, taking life for granted. Okay. Um, I heard in your TED talk that you actually, you experienced a car crash and it was almost like a near death experience. And afterwards you had, uh, you had sort of like a shift in consciousness almost. You, you started taking things, you started appreciating things more. And I was wondering, is there any research that has been done into the psychological effects of near death experiences and can they bring about a positive change in people's day-to-day lives? Definitely, yeah. I mean, I've done um, some studies on, you know, subjects. I've done studies on um, the effects of intense psychological turmoil, uh, such as a diagnosis of cancer uh, or, you know, um, becoming severely disabled or bereavement. So in many cases, uh, it involves an awareness of death or an an encounter with death. Um, My research has shown that encounters with death for some people, not for everybody, but for some people, they can be profoundly life-changing. You know, a diagnosis with cancer, for some people, it can be obviously an incredibly, well, you know, for everybody to some extent, it's incredibly um, anxious and uh, desperate experience. But some people also experience a kind of transformation. You know, they, you know, going back to awareness of death, it's the first time for some people that they're really aware of death. And they're really aware of the temporariness of life. So becoming aware of the temporariness of life can be a profound experience. And it really means becoming aware of the value of everything around you. Uh, just, just to give, the, give you an example, there's one person in my research. Um, she was diagnosed with cancer. And she was told it was a very aggressive form of cancer and that she may only have a few months left to live. But straight away, as soon as she was told that, she experienced a kind of transformation. She looked around her and realized that you know, life was a, a temporary gift uh, that was going to be taken away from her. And suddenly the whole world, all of her surroundings became incredibly real and beautiful. You know, the trees uh, vibrating on the, on the branches of the trees, sorry, the leaves vibrating on the branches of the trees, the, sk- the clouds floating by in the sky. Everything became incredibly real, incredibly beautiful. And I think it's, it's really about, uh, it's largely about cultivating a sense of presence, you know, becoming completely present. And a lot of things fall away, you know, uh, worrying about the future falls away, uh, being concerned with the past, feeling guilty or bitter about the past, all that falls away. So you're left with the present, you know, and the present becomes incredibly real, um, incredibly beautiful. And it brings out, you know, usually it's not just a temporary transformation, it becomes a permanent ongoing state. Yeah. I'd be curious to ask you, Steve, uh, what's... What does the word enlightenment mean to you? And what are some like uh, common and frustrating myths you find around waking up and, and the enlightenment process? 
Well, um, I prefer the word wakefulness to enlightenment. I think enlightenment is kind of a mistranslation. Um, it's usually associated with Buddhism. Um, but in Buddhism, the word for this day is much closer to the, the literal translation is uh, wakefulness rather than enlightenment. So if you think in terms of wakefulness, you know, um, it means a, an expansion and an intensification of awareness. And every spiritual tradition has some sort of equivalent term, which, which means roughly wakefulness. Uh, so in Hinduism, there's a state called Sahaja Samadhi. In Taoism, there's a state called Ming. Christian mystical traditions, Jewish mystical traditions have a similar term. And yeah, in, in some sense, it's all about a state in which we're more aware of reality and more in contact, more connected to the world. So for, for me, this state of wakefulness, you can think about it in, in terms of different qualities which arise in this state. And one quality, one very important quality is a transcendence of the sense of separation. Uh, so going back to the, the idea of being asleep, and the second aspect of sleep is really uh, our human being's normal sense of separateness, our sense that we are living inside our own mental space, inside our own bodies, in duality to the world. The world seems to be out there, we're in here, and there's a, a duality, there's a boundary between us. But in wakefulness, that boundary falls away. It's, it's not as though we cease to exist as individuals. We still exist, we still have an identity, but we are no longer separate to the world around us. So there's a sense of a kind of a flowing participation or connection, or even a sense of unity, you know, so that we realize that we are, our identity includes everything which seems to be out there, including other people, you know, we share our identity with other human beings. And that's one quality. Um, and there are, there are other qualities too, like a, a very strong sense of compassion, which arises from that sense of connection, strong sense of altruism. And also things like a, a transcendence of the sense of group identity. So people who wake up, they no longer feel that they are part of a certain ethnic group or a certain national group uh, or a certain sort of political affiliation. Those things just fall away. And if, if they have any sense of affiliation at all, it's just to the, the human race in general. So there's no sense of, uh, you know, differentiation between different groups of people. Um, and also the, there's a sense of kind of stillness and inner stillness. Um, I think uh, people who wake up, they still think to some degree, but usually their minds are quieter than other people's. There's a sense of kind of um, inner expansion, a kind of, a kind of spaciousness inside them. Um, uh, kind of spaciousness and a quietness within their beings. So, I mean, there are many, I think in, in my book, The Leap, I talk about, um, I identify about 24 different characteristics of wakefulness. So there, there are lots more, lots more qualities as well. Very interesting. You've done a lot of work on the importance of purpose for psychological well-being. I'd be curious to ask, uh, how do you see your own purpose in the world? Well, um, again, it's, it's something um, um, which is kind of instinctive or impulsive. So, so it's not something I've sort of consciously deliberated over so much. But um, for me, my purpose is, um, well, 
it's something which kind of flows through me rather than, rather than something which I try to consciously cultivate or which I consciously follow. It's something which kind of arises inside me and which I try to allow to express itself. And it expresses itself through my writings, uh, through creativity. Um, and I, I see my role as, as just to kind of, um, just to kind of facilitate it, just to allow it to express itself. And, you know, I can think about where, where is it going? What, what is expressing itself? What's the direction it's heading in? And if I ponder over that, then it seems to be, um, I think that's kind of the basic purpose of um, everything I write and the kind of um, uh, the impulses I feel. It's too, you know, it maybe sounds a little pompous if I say it, but uh, um, I, I, I see my role as trying, trying to sort of facilitate a shift in okay. human consciousness um, to try to contribute to a process of awakening, you know, this idea of awakening is kind of central to everything I do. And I feel that in some way, my role is to help a kind of help facilitate a collective process of awakening. I think a lot of people are working in the same direction, but I think I'm hopefully I am contributing to that process as well. So it's almost as if uh, whatever this thing is, um, your purpose or whatever, you're allowing that to flow through you or f flow through your work into the world. Um, what parts of the work that you do, does that come through strongest? Is it during your writing? Is it your speaking? At what points or what parts of your work do you feel most alive is my question. Um, I think primarily through my, through my writing. Um, and also through, through my research you know, as, as a psychologist, there, there are certain things which I feel impelled to research. And, you know, there are certain things as a, you know, as a university researcher and lecturer, there are certain things where you have to research where you're not particularly, you know, um, they're not particularly organic. You have to sort of follow the, the process and do certain things sometimes. But, but when I follow my own research goals, you know, you know, I feel very impelled to research certain things like, for example, transformation experiences. Uh, I've just done a, just completed a research project um, on transformational experiences related to bereavement, where we spoke to 16 people who'd undergone some sort of profound personal transformation after the loss of a loved one. And also another research project I'm thinking of is, um, I've heard a lot of um, reports of transformational experiences in soldiers in conflict situations. So that's something I feel impelled to investigate as well. So that's one direction, but, but books, I, I find books quite interesting because um, it's a very rare, I've written 11 books now. And, you know, apart from maybe a couple of exceptions, they kind of grow very organically. I don't sort of consciously make a decision to write a book on a certain subject. They kind of grow very slowly and organically inside me and almost as if you know it's unconscious and i just my role is just to as you said before just to kind of facilitate the uh, yeah, like being a midwife you know and the midwife of a book <laughs> you know there's a long period of gestation a bit like pregnancy mind you i said this to my wife though i feel like sometimes the books are 
the process of writing a book is a bit like being pregnant. She, you know, she wasn't very pleased about that, having been through pregnancies <laughs> herself. <laughs> but, but yeah, there is some kind of, um, you know, analogy. I wrote a book called The Fall, which is my, uh, I think it's my second book, but it's my first book that was published with a, a, a mainstream publisher that came out about uh, 13 years ago now. But it was quite strange. It took me three years to write. And all the time, I wasn't really aware of what I was doing. I wasn't really aware of where it was going. But it was almost as if I felt you know, deeply impelled to write it. And it was sort of almost like it was coming through me rather than, you know, rather than me consciously um, writing it. Very interesting. Now, is there anything, you probably get asked this question all the time, but is there anything people can do to kind of uncover their own purpose. If someone's listening to this and they want to contribute to the world, but they're not exactly sure how to go about it, what do you recommend to someone like that? Well, um, you know, I think there are many times in our lives when we can take on a kind of external purpose, which isn't really organic to us, but we feel, you know, we feel the need to please other people or maybe to follow the conventions of society. So maybe, you know, you may decide that you want to be a lawyer because of pressure from your family or, or something similar. Um, but usually, eventually, if you're not following your, your natural purpose, you will eventually become aware of it. You know, there'll be a sense of frustration, a sense of confusion, a kind of deep knowing that you're not living in an authentic way uh, but you know a lot of people repress those feelings and it can be you know maybe they're they can reach middle age and only then in middle age do they realize that they've been following an inauthentic purpose a purpose which is not right for them and i think sometimes that's what midlife crisis is it's when people realize that they've not been living organically or authentically you you, you said um earlier that you're at the minute you're really interested by uh, the transformative experiences soldiers go through after they've been in a conflict situation and things like that there. Um, how important do you think it is for people to kind of tap into their, their curiosity and sort of follow their interests to kind of get them towards doing what they, what they should be doing? It's almost like when, whenever we do that, whenever we, we follow our curiosity more, it's like we're tapping into something that's, sort of like our, our future selves is drawing us towards if that makes if that makes sense yeah um that's that's how i uh, felt originally when i kind of followed the impulse to be a writer or a psychologist so i felt as though you know something was drawing me towards it but it's easy to you know to to take the wrong path usually due to kind of social pressures um sometimes it's to do with not feeling confident enough or strong enough to follow your own impulses but, you know, it's important to, you know, to be sensitive to your own reactions to what you're doing. You know, if you feel a little twinge of frustration, sometimes you may repress it or try to override it. But it's important to follow, you know, to find out the root of your frustration and to allow it to express itself. And usually, you know, it can sometimes lead to a lot of psychological discord, you know, the realization or the slow sort of... Um, the slow realization that you're not living in the way you're supposed to. But once you face that, it will guide you in the right direction. You know, sometimes it takes a little bit of strength, 
a bit of a leap of faith to, to give up your present path and follow a more authentic path. It involves risks. It involves uh, giving up. It may involve giving up security, um, even financial security, but you have to do it. You know, we, life is temporary. You know, even if you believe in some kind of life after death, you know, life in this form is very temporary. It's fragile. So, you know, we can't afford to spend our lives doing things that we're not meant to do. Have there, have there been any moments in your life where you've taken a leap like that and things have changed for you? Um, well, I've, I'd like to think that I've always sort of followed a, an authentic path. Um, I've always um, tried to follow my creativity and tried to, I've always tried to avoid a conventional way of life, you know. Um, one of my proudest achievements is that I've never worked more than three days a week in a, in a job. So, wow. <laughs> even now, I only work three days a week at my university. Really? I, I was, yeah, I was always aware that I needed time. The main thing in my life was to allow my creativity or my spirituality to express itself. And I wanted time to do that. So wow. I always have kind of avoided, um, you know, um, full-time work. And um, I, I always sort of tried to make my life as simple as possible and try to live off as little money as possible so that I had more time to express myself or to follow my own interests. Um, but the, at the same time, you know, the, probably the most significant um, decision of my life was when I decided to go back to university to do an, a master's degree in psychology. And that led to a kind of whole new life. After, after my period of being a a musician and kind of drifting from um, place to place. Um, once I committed to returning to academia, then a whole new life opened for me. Wow. Okay. So it sounds like what you're saying that it's very important, at least for you to have, have space in your life so that these things like that you can, that, that will help you uncover whatever, whatever your purpose is supposed to be, I suppose. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, we really underestimate the importance of space and quiet time and stillness in our lives. That's why I, um, you know, I, I don't come, come from a Jewish background, but I like the, the idea of the, the Jewish idea of the Sabbath, you know, the one day of the week where you let go of activity and busyness and kind of try to be rather than to do. I think the more time we can spend being the better. For sure. For sure. Now, you could argue that nowadays we live in a, the, the predominant worldview could be said to be materialist. And I wanted to ask, what do you think the dangers are of, of having this worldview? Are they like, is it, going to, is it making us more nihilistic? Are we, do we think the, the, the universe is just blind energy, you know, like, what are the effects that has on people's psychology and why is it important for us to start to see the world in a different way? Yeah, I think it, um, one issue is that it leads to a devaluation of life and the world. Um, I mean, I think on the one hand, being materialist in a sense, it can make you aware of the, the preciousness of life, you know, because obviously um, materialism suggests that our identity or our mind is just a product of the brain. So that when the brain dies, uh, it's the end of our existence. So obviously there's no life after death. So, you know, rejecting the idea of life after death can make you more aware of the preciousness of this life. 
I think Richard Dawkins says this a lot, you know, I'm not by no means a great fan of, or any fan at all of Richard Dawkins, but I kind of quite like his emphasis on, you know, um, this world is fragile, it's temporary, it's a place of wonder, we're only here for a short time, so we should be aware of the wonder of it. That's wonderful, that's, that's great. And Nietzsche said something similar. Nietzsche said that um, by rejecting the Christian idea of the afterlife, we bring more value to this life because it's all we have. And, you know, it's Nietzsche rejected Christianity because he, he felt it was a devaluation of life. Um, and that's great. But, but in principle, sorry, in practice, that doesn't actually happen. You know, you don't get sort of many people, maybe they should be aware of the wonder of life, but in principle, sorry, in practice, materialism often leads to a sense of hedonism and consumerism you know this life is all we have therefore we should just enjoy ourselves you know what can we do but just uh, drink as much as we can go on as many holidays as we can just have a good time because you know there's nothing else and you know that involves buying as many products as we can and buying the latest clothes the latest kitchen equipment so and so kind of philosophical materialism leads to you know actual consumerist materialism there's a very strong link between them there's really no other value in life apart from what we can get out of it you know, if, if basically life is valueless, it's just a kind of a small space, an accidental space between birth and death. And we're just genetic machines who are designed to kind of um, reproduce and that's all. Then there's really nothing for us to do. You know, life has no meaning, no purpose, except to have a good time. So, you know, so materialism doesn't make life more meaningful, really. It makes life, makes human beings more kind of competitive, more materialistic and more mean, if you like. And also, I think it leads to um, a destructive attitude to the environment too, because you know, the environment, nature is kind of mechanistic. Um, um, natural things are basically chemical machines, just as we are. Therefore, you know, they have really have no value apart from what we can make of them, what we can use them for. So I think materialism kind of promotes a subtle, um, destructive attitude to the environment as well. Well, how, how do you see the world, Steve? What's, what's your worldview and what's the worldview word you talk about in your, new, in your new book, Spiritual Science? Well, my, my view is that um, the fundamental reality of the universe is not matter, but um, consciousness, or maybe you could call it spirit. So I sometimes call it fundamental consciousness. Uh, so I think, I think that you know, the basic reality of the universe is a fundamental consciousness, which is, which means that consciousness is kind of embedded into the fabric of the universe. Consciousness is a fundamental quality, which was always there, just like gravity or mass or other physical forces. Consciousness is similar to that in that it was, you know, it's, it's everywhere and it was always there in the universe. Or maybe even consciousness is, is more fundamental than, than the universe. Maybe consciousness, fundamental consciousness in some way gives rise to physical universe it's kind of like the source of the physical universe but in any case once you um kind of posit the idea that there is this kind of fundamental consciousness and you know and many philosophers many cultures throughout history have accepted that idea as a, many indigenous cultures you know the native americans called it the great spirit or the great mystery many indigenous cultures in the world had this sense that the basic reality of the universe was this spirit which was, which kind of expressed itself in all of nature and also within human beings. And once you kind of posit this idea, then it makes, makes there are many things which become easier to explain, like kind of our own consciousness, for example, 
things like altruism, human altruism, spiritual experiences, near-death experiences, all of these things become easier to explain. And what's your view on spiritual experiences? Do you think it's, I'm pretty sure you don't, but do you think it's just uh, unusual activity in the brain or what do you think is actually going on when someone's having a spiritual experience? Well, I mean, some people have tried to explain spiritual experiences in terms of unusual brain activity. There's one theory that it's um, quite a popular theory that it's related to activity in temporal lobes of the brain. Um, and some people make a, <clears throat> a comparison to um, some people with epilepsy of temporal lobe seizures. Allegedly, they have sometimes have mystical experiences. But there's really no evidence for this. In fact, there's a lot of evidence against it. You know, a lot of people, many epileptic people do not have any experiences akin to mystical or spiritual experiences. Uh, there's really no strong connection between temporal lobe activity and spiritual experiences. In fact, nobody has really any, any idea of what the, the brain correlates of spiritual experiences are. There don't seem to be any clear correlates. So my feeling is that you, you know, these experiences are not um, brain-based experiences. Um, I think that, um, you know, going back to the idea of fundamental consciousness, consciousness I think that rather than believing that the, brain, the consciousness is produced by brain activity, um, that consciousness is a kind of shadow of brain activity. I think, you know, another way of looking at it, which is a lot of um, psychologists and philosophers would now, you know, consider this to be a kind of, you know, viable alternative way of looking at consciousness. One way of looking at it is to suggest that consciousness is some kind of fundamental feature of the universe and that the function of our brains is not to produce consciousness, but to kind of canalize consciousness into our own individual being. So universal consciousness is all around us as a kind of fundamental quality. And the purpose of our brains, of our brain cells and the networks of our brains is to allow that fundamental force to express itself individually within us so that we become individually conscious. Wow. And, so it, would I be right in saying it's almost like we're antenna that are tuning in tuning into consciousness yeah exactly yeah um you know consciousness is kind of transmitted through the brain into our individual beings and and that's why you know many spiritual experiences uh there is a strong sense of connection and oneness you know there's a sense that in some way especially in, in very deep um awakening experiences uh, there's a sense that our own identity Kind of dissolves into the universe as a whole. We, a bit like um, you know, a drop of a, a drop of rain falling to the ocean and disappearing to the ocean. There's a sense that we dissolve into a kind of a universal consciousness. Our own individual consciousness dissolves into a universal consciousness, and that is in this, that is essentially exactly what is happening. We are experiencing our own fundamental oneness. You know, what the, you know, there's a certain point of in a deep set of states of meditation, for example when we make contact with the, the kind of the purest essence of our being, which is fundamental consciousness. And that purest essence, we are literally one with the whole universe because we are, we reach a point where we, you know, we experience our fundamental oneness uh, with the whole universe. Okay. And 
has there been any research done into whether the mind can heal the body? Yeah, I mean, um, and this is one of, one of the things which um, the standard model, the kind of materialistic model of science struggles to explain because the mind is basically a kind of shadow of the brain and therefore it shouldn't really have any influence over the brain or the body. Um, you wouldn't expect the, um, you know, the images on a computer screen to be able to affect the internal workings of the computer because it's just produced by the computer. It shouldn't really be able to affect the kind of hardware of the computer itself. But in effect, that's what the, the mind of the body, you know, and the brain as well. The, what, what you do with your mind affects the structures of the brain. And what you do with your mind affects the functioning and the well-being of your body. So, I mean, this is traditionally known as the placebo effect in one of its manifestations. There's so much research showing that um, believing that you're likely to be healed engineers healing of some form. And it's not just belief, you know, there are, there's lots of um, evidence showing that actual healing does take place through the placebo effect, even to the extent of, um, you know, the phenomenon of sham surgery, where believing that you've undergone an operation can actually make the operation successful, even though nothing has actually happened. There's been no intervention from the surgeon. There's been research done on that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there, was, um, there have been studies of the effectiveness of sham surgery uh, okay. when it, you know, obviously it's obviously quite unethical. Most of the research was taken, was took place in the 1990s. Um, but yeah, there, there, there've been sort of um, um, meta-analyses of all of the instances of sham surgery, which, which shows that, you know, they're almost as successful as normal surgery, kind of uh, active surgery. And yeah, things like hypnosis. So it's well known that under hypnosis, uh, people can experience a a great deal of um, uh, healing from some conditions and also that hypnosis can have a very strong analgesic effect, pain killing effect. But these are all instances in which belief or intention can have a very pronounced influence on the functioning of the body. Yeah. Okay. Um, a few more questions before we finish up, Steve. Uh, I wanted to ask how, how many books have you written in the past in the past number of years? Um, well, my first book was published in 2003. And so I've written 11 books since 2003. Right, okay, that's, that's quite a track record. Um, have you got any advice for young writers now who would like to achieve similar things with, with their writing? Well, um, Writing is uh, maybe like a lot of activities, a lot of creative activities. It's something that you, you have to do um, without considering the, the kind of um, the idea of success. You have to just feel a very strong impulse to do, to do it. And the kind of the, the joy of it comes from the act of creativity rather than from the rewards. So if you think about the rewards of, write, of writing, then you won't get very far. You just have to sort of feel a strong impulse to create um, structured works of nonfiction or fiction, whatever it is. And that in itself, you know, for me, it's a tremendous joy. Uh, create the creative aspect of it is, is wonderful. It's, um, and, you know, the rewards of writing can be quite, quite thin, you know, they can be quite scanty. Uh, and it involves a lot of rejection too. You know, I was, um, I started writing books in, 
well, I can't remember exactly, but there were a, there was a long period before I actually became published when I would continually received rejections and I was continually disappointed. But I just had a very strong impulse that this is what I wanted to do, and I, I continued. You know, I I didn't allow the rejections to discourage me. So I'd say it's, it's very important not to be discouraged by any rejections because that's inevitable. It, it can also take a long time for you to find your voice as well to, to sort of, I mean, it's like any apprenticeship, it can take a long time to develop the skill of writing. It took me a long time. And again, I think the main thing, as I said earlier, you have to, you have to engage in the activity just for the, the joy of creation rather than cons considering the rewards of it. Yeah. And what is, what does your creative process look like? Whenever you've got an idea for a book you want to bring into the world, practically how do you go about that well as i said before um, they normally take a long time to to manifest themselves so i i have notebooks and journals so i whenever i have ideas i sort of develop them in my journal i make notes in my journal and sometimes i'll just be sort of walking along the street maybe waiting in a queue at a shop and sometimes it'll just hit me. He said, yeah, oh, yeah, that, that's an idea for a book. I can see the whole book kind of uh, mapped out. Almost like a sort of painting where you can, see, you can see the positioning of everything in the painting. I can sort of see the whole structure of a book. And maybe like an architect, you know, sees a, a building, the kind of the, the plan of a building and the structure of a building. So it's, 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 quite, it's quite sort of involuntary in a way. It just sort of appears. Um, and once I have the basic structure in my mind, then it's normally, you know, not such a difficult process, quite an easy process, so it's quite time consuming. It's a process of kind of uh, filling out the structure, kind of building on that structure. So it's, for me, usually it manifests itself in terms of chapters. I'll get um, an idea for a book and I'll see the topic of each chapter. You know, so maybe it'll be 10 chapters or 12 chapters. And, I have a vision of how they kind of fit together. Yeah. And um, I also write poetry. That's one of my sort of hobbies is writing poetry. Like, but that's something different. That's much more kind of instantaneous and much more spontaneous. Right, okay. And what's, what's next for you? You've got a book published now. Is it, it's just been published? Spir Spiritual Science? Yeah, well, it's just about to be published. It's published in September, 2018. Okay, and uh, are there any ideas for future books that are kind of brewing at the minute or what's what's the situation there well um i've got a for the last few years i've been doing some sort of ongoing research i mentioned my research project on bereavement and um, um a future research project on transformational experiences in in the context of war and i've done similar similar kind of research on um, um people who've undergone transformational experiences through um, following addiction, for example. And also I've been in contact recently with um, a couple of prisoners in America. Uh, people who've been confined in prison for decades who've undergone transformational experiences too. So I've got a feeling that, um, that all, these, all these experiences will kind of come together in one book. Maybe, I've got a feeling it may be called uh, Extraordinary Awakenings. Okay. So that I thought it, I had this sort of this vision of this sort of book a few weeks ago that you know there may be a chapter on bereavement, a chapter on warfare, a chapter on prisons and experiences, a chapter on, on addiction, 
and then diagnosis of cancer and so on. So, so that'll, um, that'll be one of my next books um, at some point. That'll be fascinating. Um, Steve, I wanted to ask you as well, do you have any regular spiritual practices that you, you conduct on a daily basis or a weekly basis? Do you meditate regularly? How do you kind of keep in touch with a present state of mind? I, I do meditate, yeah. I try and meditate at least once a day. Uh, I don't always do that. It depends on where I am. Uh, I find that, uh, um, you know, if I'm based at home, if I'm not traveling, then usually I meditate every day, sometimes twice a day if I've got the time. Um, but also um, I like to sort of um, look after my body too. So I do um, yoga. Uh, sometimes I do qigong, so Taoist Chinese exercises. And um, I like to, to go running as well. For me, running is a kind of spiritual practice, I'd say, you know, because um, uh, running can make me feel very, very aware of the kind of the, the beauty of my surroundings, makes everything become very real. And I think the rhythm of uh, running is a bit like, a, it's a bit like a mantra in meditation. You, your mind slows down and you become um, a bit of space seems to open up inside me. So it's the same with swimming as well. So I like, to, I like to think of swimming and running as, as spiritual practices as well. Sort of like a moving meditation almost. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if, I mean think of swimming, for example, when you, when you're swimming, you're, you know, to some extent you become aware of the motion of your limbs in the water, the feeling of your limbs moving within the water and the water is a kind of almost like a massaging effect because of the weight of, uh, against your limbs and you become relaxed. And so, yes, yeah, it is a kind of mindfulness meditation, I'd say. Right. Okay. Um, what books have had the biggest impact on your life? What, what books have you recommended most to other people? Um, one book I, I often recommend people nowadays is a, a book called Irreducible Mind which was produced by a, a group of people. And the main author was a guy called Edward Kelly, an American psychologist. And it's, it's quite a, in some ways, it's quite an academic book. It's quite long, so about 700 pages, but it's, um, it's based on the ideas, you know, similar to the, the idea I was mentioning earlier, the idea that consciousness is fundamental to the universe. And so mind is irreducible. You can't think of mind as being something like a, a product of the brain. Mind is in some way fundamental to the universe. And it looks at, um, you know, psychic phenomena. Um, it looks into creativity, uh, kind of genius, the phenomenon of geniuses who have incredible creativity. It looks into things like hypnosis and the power of the mind to affect the body. And it's a really fantastic overview of all of the evidence suggesting that, you know, mind is not just the product of the brain. It's something fundamental in the universe. Um, so that's one book. I would recommend. And um, I think when I was younger, maybe the book which had the biggest impact on me was um, a book called The Outsider by Colin Wilson, which I read when I was about 19, I think. Okay. And uh, it really, at the time, it was, um, it really helped me to understand myself, um, to make me, th it made me think that, you know, the state of being alienated from other people, of feeling different and not being able to fit in, they wasn't, something negative, it could actually be a positive syndrome, but it was actually a positive thing to be unable to, 
to fit into mainstream society. Um, so that I think that's also a very helpful book for people who are going through kind of a period of um, turbulence and uh, people who have a lack of self-understanding. For sure, for sure. And what's what's the this is a big question, but what's the best bit of advice you've ever received? Um, well, one really good piece of advice I received was from a friend of mine, a guy called Russell Williams, who was like, a, he was kind of a spiritual teacher who I used to go to see in Manchester. And he, he unfortunately died about four months ago at the, at the age of 96. So he had a, a long and um, productive life. But he said, one of his teaching was that um, he said simply, rather than paying attention to the content of your thoughts, just be aware of the process of thinking. Okay. So don't pay attention to what's in your thoughts. Just be aware of it as a process which is taking place in your mind, that you don't have to pay attention to its content. Very cool, very cool. Well, Steve, um, I, I think that's pretty much everything. Uh, you've got a talk with us on the 30th of October, I believe. 28th, I think, isn't it? Sunday 28th. the 28th. I should really know that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Good job, I know it. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. We'll include links for everything in the, in the show notes for this. And w I want to ask you as well, Steve, where can people find you online? So the best place is um, my website, which is uh, www. Stephen M. Taylor, so Stephen with a V, M for Mark, stephenmtaylor.com. Well, Steve, thanks so much for your time, and I'm really looking forward to your talk in October. Yeah, me too. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget that you can win a three-month pass worth £150 to the Weekend University if you subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. And if you're interested in keeping up to date with new psychology lectures and upcoming events, you can sign up for the mailing list at theweekenduniversity.com.